0: Well, this morning, I am bringing the final message in my series, Rediscovering Jesus. And my title is Jesus, the Son of Man. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus, the Man, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Divine Son of God, and today, Son of Man. Now, in every message that I bring to you, I think in advance What would I like you, most of all, to take away from this message? And it's this. Jesus is my champion. Would you say that with me, everybody? Jesus is my champion. Well, the Son of Man teaches us that he has fought on our behalf and has prevailed and got a victory, which he's handed over to to us. We're going to see that today. Now, the Son of Man passage I've chosen to teach from is Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Here is Jesus' trial before the then high priest, Caiaphas. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him. You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy, what further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Courtroom dramas, very popular genre in our age, whether you go back to the days of television series Perry Mason or more recent blockbuster movies such as A Few Good Men or the highly popular John Grisham novels, for example, A Time to Kill. What fascinates us about courtroom drama is it's the place of reckoning. The place where authority dispenses justice. It's where you get the guilty or prove innocence. If you're looking for justice, if you're innocent, you say, I want justice. If if you're guilty, you look more for mercy rather than justice. I remember my first time in court. Don't worry, I was speaking for somebody <laughs> and um, I was totally unfamiliar with what the protocol was, even the layout of a courtroom and uh, one of our members who was an alcoholic had got in trouble over drinking and uh, was, was up before quite a, quite a serious possible sentence. And I went to speak up for him on his behalf. I didn't know where to stand, so I stood where I thought was an appropriate place to stand. And the magistrate said, would you move away, Reverend Dyer? You're standing in the dock. (laughs) Well, I pleaded leniency. I asked, in effect, for mercy from the court. And the man got it, mercy. It's good to have somebody speak up for you in court. But Jesus had nobody to speak up for him. He didn't even speak up for himself. He remained silent. Instead, when it came time to speak, he didn't defend himself, he prophesied. He prophesied his vindication as Son of Man. He prophesied a time which was very soon to come about, very, very soon to come about, a time when God's representative and your champion, the Son of Man, was going to triumph and be vindicated. I asked the question, who was really on trial? Jesus or the high priest? Was it the kingdom of God or this defunct, what had become now a corrupt religious system? So when we talk about Son of Man, we... We know, if we read the Gospels, that it was Jesus' preferred title. For example, when uh, Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus immediately switches to his preferred title. You will see the Son of Man going to be handed over, betrayed, and so on. So why is it that Jesus preferred this title? We're going to ask that question and answer that question today. But before we do so, we need to look at the different ways in which the Bible uses this expression, son of man. At its simplest and most regular level, son of man simply means a human being. What is the son of man that you visit him? It's talking about human beings, humanity. There are passages in the Bible also that show that son of man applies to Israel as a nation. The nation of Israel was God's son of man. And when we go to the prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel, we find that son of man is a title given to a prophet. We know the servant of God is a, is a, is a title also. But when it comes to Ezekiel, 93 times in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel the prophet is called son of man, Daniel also. So we know that uh, it's a, a very important prophetic title. But it is, as well as that, a very important and somewhat overlooked messianic title. And you read about that in Daniel 7. We'll come to that reference later on in the message. But in Daniel 7, we see here a man who is victorious through suffering, who's overcome evil, particularly the evil powers that operate behind the kingdoms of men and defeats all of these and therefore is exalted to the right hand of God in great power, in great glory, and he receives an everlasting kingdom, the right to rule. And later on in the passage, we read about how he, he hands and shares that kingdom with God's people. That is the prophecy of the Son of Man. So when it comes to the life and ministry of Jesus, it's not surprising that Son of Man would come up 83 times throughout the Gospels, once in the book of Acts, twice in the book of Revelation, this reference to Jesus being the Son of Man. Now why was it Jesus' preferred title? I used to think that it was a kind of way of saying don't talk too much about Messiah because you all misunderstand that term, speak rather about Son of Man. And into that he could invest that with all the prophetic meaning of his life and message and ministry. But it's much, much more than a humble stepping away from a wrong understanding of Messiahship. It's much less that than it is Jesus embracing a title that so specifically and so fully expresses everything about what God had called him to be and to do. So let's look at that Daniel 7 passage, verses 13 to 14. And here we have Daniel seeing visions. He says in verse 13, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So when we look at this. in a bit of detail I won't go into too much detail but let's unpack at least ten things about this messianic message that so beautifully fits Jesus number one Jesus the man the word was made flesh secondly Jesus the Messiah this is a messianic figure in Daniel 7 and also his prophethood in fact while we understand that Jesus is much more than a prophet we'd expect the word being made flesh to prophesy And it was particularly a very upsetting prophecy of Jesus concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and particularly the destruction of the temple which Jesus said, within this generation, speaking to the people of that day, within this generation not one stone will be laid upon another. So clearly he's a prophet. We also see that Daniel 7 refers to a a, a person who has triumphed through suffering. That is implied. Very heavily strengthened by the suffering servant figure of Isaiah 53. Not only the one who would suffer and die for the sake of his people, but one who would rise again victoriously. uh, This uh, Daniel 7 passage speaks also about his ascension into heaven. That's exactly what is being spoken of here. It's not the Son of Man coming from heaven, bringing the clouds of heaven... It is the Son of Man ascending to heaven and receiving in the presence of God all the wonderful clouds and glory of his Shekinah presence, receiving in the presence of God an honoring, an enthronement at his right hand and the receiving of a kingdom. So it's about his ascension, his resurrection and ascension. Jesus says he receives all, has received all authority after this time. And also he gives his kingdom to his followers. This means that Jesus, as the Son of Man, the conquering Son of Man, is your champion. And he has authority to save, to forgive, and authority to judge the nations. His place of honor at the Father's right hand is sharing with the very glory of God because he is God the Son. And also this close association with the Father shows statements such as Jesus said uh, before Abraham was, I am And and I and the Father are one. uh, Absolutely vindicating every claim that Jesus made. There is a succinct statement from one of the uh, world's uh, most prominent New Testament theologians. This is what he says. It's, It's beautiful language. He says, The messianic figure of Daniel 7, who will receive an everlasting kingdom for and on behalf of God's people, who will suffer and die but rise again, and be exalted to the right hand of the Father, who will be vindicated as the Redeemer of Israel and indeed also the Savior of all nations. No, no, no. This is important title. It's something that Jesus wanted to be used of Him. Unlike many of the other titles and many of the other ways in which people throw names at other people. I remember a number of years ago when I was part of a meeting in the Royal Albert Hall, the place was full, and we were looking at that time at legislation that was bringing unnecessary liberalisation in the whole abortion issue. And uh, it was quite a scary experience because we were surrounded by protesters, and the protesters were so violent that one of the members of parliament who participated in this public rally was attacked, assaulted, and his, his wrist was broken right there at the stage door of the Royal Albert Hall. And uh, behind the protest was a tremendous amount of name-calling. I, I remember the, the banners, the posters, and the, and the slogans that were shouted, Born-again bigots! Born-again bigots! I looked on their faces and I thought, you don't have to be born again to be a bigot. But there's nothing worse than feeling misunderstood, mislabeled, misrepresented. We want people to call us what we really are. Names and titles, descriptions are important. But we as Christians throughout history have always been subject to name calling, to antagonism and disdain. This isn't a victim mentality, it's just a matter of fact and from, for the main throughout church history, we've risen to, the, to this kind of challenge. Right from the very beginning, do you know the term Christian was supposed to be a derogatory term? Oh, you always talking about Christos, Christos, Christos. You Christ people, you Christian people, you Christian people. And when the Christians heard it, they say, we like it, thank you very much. We are Christian people. But today, name calling and uh, different ways of labeling people it's a very important political weapon. It's used against Christians. God forbid that we should ever use it against other people. But the kind of things that we are likely to and are increasingly going to be called are names such as this. Intolerant, bigoted, ignorant, homophobic, Islamophobic, and so on and so on. Get ready. More is on the way. I uh, read a, a little book analysis of this phenomenon recently, I want to quote a a short paragraph to show you exactly what is being used against other people because they hate what they stand for. If a name associated with a given set of convictions becomes marginalized, you begin to recognize the pattern straight away. First of all, marginalize. A certain set of convictions. Marginalized and eventually used as a term of abuse. Marginalize, then abuse. It's only a small step to treating the convictions themselves with derision. Marginalize, abuse, deride. And another short step from this to criminalizing. So you've got marginalize, you've got abuse, you've got deride, and then criminalize. That is the trajectory that we are on. Then the quotation ends, labeling, branding, and name calling are common tactics used in this process. It hurts. We want people to know us for who we are. We don't want to be labeled those things. And let me just say again, uh, Christians are sometimes pretty guilty themselves by labeling other people and using this tactic. Our weapons are not the carnal weapons of this world. We should know how to absorb hate, understand that it's coming, uh, to us because they hated Jesus and and Jesus loved in return. And so also we should make sure that none of those labels really fit. And I do know some pretty bigoted and intolerant Christians. I don't know if you've ever ever met one. Nobody here today, of course. But uh, we have to make sure that we are different. 1 Peter 3.15 gives us a pattern for this. And Jesus is the example from, from our incident today. 1 Peter 3.15 talks about how we should first of all set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. When we respect him, we're not likely to disrespect others. Because we, if we respect him, we're going to love others. Then it says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you, but to do so meekly and gently. That's the right response. And we see Jesus as a great example of this. As there he is in this trial which then, of course, leads on to his trial before Pilate, the Roman procurator. But now this is the the significant one, because he was handed over from here to the Roman authority. What brought Jesus there? We know that that story goes back a long while into Jesus' ministry. He was hated by the religious authorities, because he showed them up. Just his very popularity breeded a sense of envy, even to the point where Pilate, it says, he perceived it was out of envy that Jesus had been handed over to him. But there were certain things in particular, and that is Jesus' actions in the temple and his attitude towards the temple. In the last week before Jesus' arrest, his trial and his crucifixion, Jesus cleansed the temple. Do you remember that incident? He goes in, drives out the money changers, and he says, this is my father's house. You've made it a den of thieves. It should be a house of prayer for all nations. And that was, in one sense, a fulfillment of the prophetic element, but there was an even greater prophetic action taking place. Jesus was claiming ownership of the temple. He stood right in that place as the one who had recently said... This body is the temple of God. Destroy this body, the body of Jesus and He will raise it up again. So Jesus was saying, you've got it wrong. The temple now is coming to the end of its useful life and there's a new temple that is being replaced and as Messiah, I am the living presence of God. I am the temple of the living God. Amen. And for a short time, as, as all confusion breaks out, All of the sacrificial apparatus of the temple, all the daily functioning of the temple ground to a halt for a short period of time while they dealt with this commotion and then it resumed as usual. Jesus was making very bold claims and from that moment onwards they were determined to make sure the time of Jesus' arrest and his death was going to happen very, very quickly. That was the prophetic action. And then we read in the Gospels of how Jesus goes further than that and makes a very strong prophecy. they come to him and say, look at all this, this marvelous building. They were proud of their temple. This was Herod's temple that was almost complete after 40 years or so of rebuilding And behind that, there was a political move by Herod to try and make himself look like a messianic figure because the Messiah was always either going to build the temple or rebuild it, cleanse it, and purify it. But Jesus was not coming just to do that. He was the temple of God. The most holy place had been anointed when Jesus was anointed. And his disciples said, look at these wonderful stones. And Jesus said, do you know what? The time is coming... When not one stone of this building will remain on top of the other. And when we read the passage, Jesus prophesied the fulfillment of that within his own generation. And he said it's going to happen. And it did happen. In AD 64 there was a um, really very, very ridiculous Jewish revolt against Rome... If they'd listened to the preaching of Jesus, they'd have seen that Messiah was not so much to come to bring in the political freedom, but to bring in the kingdom of God that was going to be more important than any human kingdom, including the kingdom of Israel. They couldn't stomach it. And then Jesus said, no, it's going to happen. And why did Jesus prophesy that? For two reasons. First of all, it was a judgment that was falling on that generation for all of the opposition and persecution of the prophets and the final rejection of of God the Son. Second reason why it was important was this was going to make it clear to everybody that the temple system based on the old covenant was coming to an end. When Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, he offered the full and final sacrifice. From that moment onwards, the temple was totally redundant and defunct. And to demonstrate that, God in his mercy removed it. I don't understand people who still put their hope in any kind of temple, even the temple mount in Jerusalem. And so that's what happened. Now, of course, they heard about this, and Jesus was arrested. There's no doubt about it. Jesus' cleansing of the temple and his prophecy concerning its destruction brings him to court. Now I want you to picture the scene. On the one side, we have the high priest. Who is he? He is God's representative of the old system. He's still God's representative... An old system that was about to be replaced. He was the head of the old covenant. And as well as that, sadly, he was now the head of what had become a most corrupt system. A most defunct system. A compromised system. A system that was so entrenched that the high priest himself could not recognize that the anointed Messiah was the one in front of him. Now he opposes And indeed condemns the very Messiah and the Redeemer of Israel. I mean, how clear can it be? And on the other side we have Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel. The one to be the light to the nations. The one who is the head of the new covenant. And the one who is also going to bring down the old system. And this one, Jesus the Messiah, the anointed Messiah, the anointed holy place of God... the destruction of the temple and God's judgment on Jerusalem and the whole of the nation of Israel. And by the way, in case we Gentiles start getting arrogant here, remember judgment begins at the house of God. We have to fear the holy name of the God who will judge the nations of the world and the only way of escape is through the power of the blood of the new covenant. Amen and amen. And now this Jesus is about to be vindicated as the new temple of God as the Messiah. And also, along with him, vindication was going to come to all God's people everywhere, all those who inhabited also by the Holy Spirit. That is what at stake. And so, we read the story, false witnesses, they are trying to find something to pin on Jesus and uh, And they were very concerned about the temple, so they thought we can get him in that area. But the false witnesses didn't agree. So the high priest challenges Jesus and says, well, tell us, are you the Messiah or not? The Son of the Blessed, are you or not? Now that question, in all likelihood, did not mean that the high priest was asking, are you God the Son? ...manifested in the flesh. He had no idea, no category of thinking in any way. Dull mind that he was. Uninspired, unenlightened, even to think in those terms. But he was trying to get Jesus to say something that would convict him of a crime. And even to accept that you were Messiah... who could immediately be reported to the Romans saying... ...yes, this is the man who's calling himself the king of the Jews... ...and he's inciting rebellion against Rome... But even more than that, the high priest is so satisfied. Can you see the hypocrisy? Tearing your clothes is a sign of mourning, but he is f- furious on the outside, but delighted on the inside. I got gotcha. you. I gotcha. you. I not need to hear any more. You've heard it yourself. Blasphemy, blasphemy. Now, if the high priest didn't understand that Jesus was God manifested in the flesh, what is the charge of blasphemy all about? Well, I've already said it. The temple... If you speak against the temple, it is a crime. Remember Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, some three, three and a half years from this moment, they, they, they had him for, he's spoken against the temple. That's blasphemous. You spoke about sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's a little bit too close to God for comfort. Clouds of glory, that's not just some kind of smoke machine. Clouds of glory here speak about the very presence of God, an appearance of God. So we have Jesus enveloped in the very presence of God, being exalted to the Father, claiming to to be Messiah. Why? That's blasphemy. And also as Messiah and to their mind, false Messiah, He's leading people astray. And therefore, that's blasphemous. You lead people astray, you'll end up worshipping not the one true living God, Yahweh, but you'll be worshipping other gods. So all of these reasons in His own mind justified the high priest from bringing in a verdict of guilty to the charge of of blasphemy. But one thing the high priest did not know was that he was the one who was really on trial, not Jesus. And Jesus does not defend himself, he simply prophesies. He prophesies the time coming when he would be vindicated. Listen to these words very, very carefully because... Uh, I've read them many times, but it wasn't until when I was really focusing on this that I understood just how amazing his words are. Verse 64, Jesus said, you've said so, but I tell you. Look at these words. From now on. Don't have to wait 2,000 or more years for the second coming. From now on. You will see... The Son of Man seated at the power, the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. It is not primarily a reference to the second coming of Jesus. It is a reference to the exaltation of Jesus after his death and resurrection. And he said to this man, you're going to see it. How would he see it? In the resurrection. How would he see it? When the early church is filled with the Holy Spirit. How would he see it? When the message is going through all the nations of the world, this man was going to see it. And who knows? But that he would also see the first beginnings of what would finally be the great vindication of God's new covenant which was the destruction of the edifice of the old. Wow, that's amazing. So Jesus is vindicated as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, as the one receiving all authority. Remember after the resurrection, what did Jesus say? All authority has been given to me. And as the true prophet, every single word was fulfilled. Not one stone was laid upon the other. Within a generation, just as Jesus, our prophet, more than a prophet, of course, but our prophet prophesied so clearly. Wow, wow. What an unexpected triumph. You know, over the United States of America, there's been another shock surprise. And many people ask, why? Why would a man... President-elect Donald Trump. Why would a man who so, was so offensively, politically incorrect, such a social heretic in the eyes of society, so obnoxious to many with all that he said, how could he win a majority through the Electoral College to, be, to secure the presidency? Now that's what a lot of commentators have been wringing their hands over this last week. And part of the answer is that it appears he gave voice to a forgotten, neglected majority. People who felt left behind by the system, the institutions of government and power. Government is supposed to look after everybody, not just those groups who are championed by whatever political trend is popular in the day. Now I say all that to draw a parallel, not so much the outcome, but the parallel to what was happening in Jesus' day. Because the whole of the temple was governed by an elite, ruling, political class, aristocratic class, called the Sadducees. And the religion was dominated by a superior religious class called the Pharisees. But in the meantime, the ordinary people were forgotten, neg- neglected, looked down on. And Jesus' popularity and what caused so much jealousy was the ordinary people, the common people, whatever that might mean in that situation. But the ordinary people, the ordinary man in the street recognized that Jesus was carrying an authority and that he could see that it was different. He taught with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And in the same way that a system, the new covenant, the temple system, the religious structures of the day were supposed to champion the needs of ordinary people. For the poor, the marginalized, everybody was supposed to be embraced by this covenant of God. And now we find it being dominated by elitist groups both politically and religiously. And so that's a reason and a warning for us, friends, to sit up and take notice. I'm not talking about government or politics or Donald Trump or even the old covenant. I'm talking about you and me. Who do we champion? Jesus is our champion. Who do we champion? Do we champion the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the forgotten? Do we champion the minority groups who are still persecuted? Would we speak up against Muslim persecution? Would we? You're very silent, I mean a real question. I would. I'd speak against all injustice. But I also speak for the right for us to declare our faith and to challenge other beliefs, but we speak up for people. Otherwise we are going to be called names and sometimes it will be correct that we are. But oh no, 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 no. Christianity is not about a superior class. The moment it gets out of the hands of ordinary people who just want to love God and serve Him together and gather together in His name and further the cause and purposes of His kingdom, the moment it becomes some kind of hierarchical, institutional, elitist kind of movement, we're in big trouble. Let's get back to the Jesus of the New Testament. Can I have an amen in the house? Amen. So, Jesus is my champion. So I'm going to say our, but inside I'm saying my. My. <laughs> Because he's yours and mine. What does this mean? It means that Jesus has prevailed on our behalf. He has won for us a victory, uh, an unimpeachable victory, a victory that can never be overturned, a once-for-all victory for us over sin, death, hell, the grave, and all the powers of evil. And when you get to read the book of Daniel, you know that the Son of Man prevailed over all of those kingdoms which were prophesied about that would finally fall because our God is in control and the sovereignty of the universe and the nations belongs to God and now it's in the hands of Jesus. And He prevailed. He prevailed therefore over all the kingdoms of the earth, all of the kingdoms, all of the empires. He has prevailed over number 10. He's prevailed over the White House Amen. without a single name being called. <laughs> and he's established for us on earth his kingdom Wonderful, everlasting kingdom, a kingdom of victory, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of authority, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of justice, and we are part of that kingdom, and guess what? We win. No, I correct myself. We have already won, for our champion has got the victory. And here's the most wonderful thing. Not only did Jesus gain the kingdom, but he gives it to us. It's amazing. If you have a look back in Daniel 7, 21 and 22, you will see it's specific there. But let's go to the New Testament, Luke 12, verses 30 to 32. It's a very important passage, and it's one of the most encouraging, tender passages in all the New Testament. And it's parallel to what Matthew records uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a similar statement that Luke records. Verse 30... For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Remember that from the Sermon on the Mount? So he said, don't rush after these things. Verse 31, instead, seek His kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek the kingdom? To seek the kingdom is to seek God's rule and His will being established on the earth in your life and in my life. Go ahead, give him a praise. Then verse 32, what a remarkable statement, but in in the context of the Son of Man, we see that it's so, so correct. Verse 32, fear not, little flock. It's not about us becoming big and great. Little flock, fear not, little flock. Don't be afraid. You may be small in number, you may be a minority, you may be frail and vulnerable, especially if you refuse to fight back with the weapons of our warfare, name-calling bombs and bullets or whatever. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to what? To give you the kingdom. Wow. So when we turn to Matthew 28, verse 18, we read it with new eyes. The one who has received all authority on our behalf. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's unpack that very briefly. All authority. There is nothing by way of authority that Jesus is lacking. He has all authority. He has authority over the circumstances of your life. He has authority over your employment, your education, your family, your disease, your sickness, your life. He has authority over all things. Then he says authority in heaven. Now we understand that. Okay. No problem, heaven is. But he says, not just all authority in heaven, but all authority on earth. Jesus has all authority on earth. That's a faith statement. But of course, we are included in the plan of God to see that authority established through God's kingdom. That's where we come in and we'll show you in a moment. And here's this statement to prove that Daniel 7 was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's saying, the clouds of glory have come. The exaltation to the right hand of the Father has happened. The Son of man has come into his glory, should he not first have suffered and then enter his glory. This is the time of the glorious Son of man who rules in heaven on our behalf, who has already conquered sin, hell, death and the grave on our behalf. Hallelujah. Therefore, he fights for me. Okay, you weren't so happy about that. He fights for you. And defends you. And I know that you and I, together with all God's people, will be vindicated in the end against all gods as children of God's kingdom. Amen. But it doesn't stop there. As you know, Matthew 28 doesn't finish there, does it? He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, this is even more staggering. Not only has he prevailed on our behalf, Not only have we been called to inherit the fruits of his victory, but we've also been called to participate in the outworking of the kingdom on the earth. It's amazing. He's called and commissioned us to be agents of his kingdom, a kingdom that cannot fail, which cannot be shaken. Let everything be shaken, but God's kingdom cannot be shaken. And whatever God is doing, we see he's doing a bit of shaking. America was shaken. And this glory of the kingdom will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And it will endure forever and ever. Hallelujah. Jesus is my champion. And I am his fellow worker. How amazing. Therefore, dear friends. We are called and commissioned by the king to be representatives of the kingdom. That's why he says, pray every day, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And don't just pray it. Go out there and do it. Therefore, you and I are called, number one, to be genuine disciples of Christ in his kingdom. That's what this church is all about. Genuine disciples. That's what our cell ministry is all about. The cell ministry is just a structure. It's just a tool to give you an opportunity to grow in your life as a disciple of Jesus. More than the blessings of central services, it is also to take and work out in practice what is preached on Sunday. And that's why every service we give you a list of application questions that the cell leaders will direct it in your direction and theirs in the cell meeting. But not just to be genuine disciples of Jesus, but to become genuine disciple makers. Don't say you can't do it. All authority has been given to me. Go in my name. Go with my authority. And the weakest amongst us can do it. Because Jesus is our champion. Amen and amen. Now you've heard about the 2020 vision. We'll be presenting it in detail in our January conference. But let me just give you another Appetizer. We have many, many goals spiritual growth goals, numerical growth goals, and growth and influence. But one of the goals that we have is to see by the end of the year 2020, 90% of KTLCC members active and engaged in cell ministry, being part of the cells. Now, at the moment, 78.7%, 78.7%, so we told it, work it all out. And I'm not going for 100% because I want people to know that I understand, Some for some of you, it's going to take time to step into that. And not everybody is going to say, yeah, I'm going to commit to this from day one. And, but, but the majority, the vast majority, can do it. And, and so what I want to see is you Growing as a disciple of Jesus and growing as a disciple maker. Why? Why, why, why? Because we are children of the kingdom. Jesus has triumphed and he's given us a job to do. And we can rejoice in the fact that he's fighting for us, fighting for you, whatever your situation is. It could be a difficulty in your home. It could be a difficulty in your finances or your education or your place of work or your business or whatever. He's fighting for you. And while he's fighting for you, he says, go out there and fight for me. Go out there and express and show and demonstrate and proclaim my kingdom, that the kingdom of God has come. This is the last message on rediscovering Jesus. We're going to go on from here and other things. One the thing to do is rediscover Jesus' message. And R.T. Kendall next year when he comes is going to take us through the Sermon on the Mount which is the best way of connecting with the real message of Jesus. But for now, we're going to close this series, Rediscovering Jesus. And also last Sunday evening, we closed the series, Rediscovering the Kingdom. And I said to my primary leaders, do you know what? It's one and the same series. You can't rediscover the kingdom without rediscovering Jesus. You can't rediscover Jesus without rediscovering the kingdom. Get the series and let's work on this together. But there's a glorious adventure God is stepping us into victory. And whatever it might look, a little flock, we will not be afraid. What can man do to us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Give him a big praise.